Please rise and let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O God, who in this wonderful sacrament has left us a memorial of your passion, grant us, we beseech you, so to venerate the sacred mysteries of your body and blood, that we may constantly experience in ourselves the fruit of your redemption, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What we did last time we were together, those three series of talks, which really just kind of scratched the surface, dealt with the liturgy kind of as a structural ritualistic reality, some very practical things. One of the great motivators for that is we have had an increase, and since then we've continued to have an increase of people who are coming to celebrate Holy Mass here at the Oratory of Saints Gregory and Augustine. And it was suggested to me, both for those who are familiar, but those who are unfamiliar but coming, that this might serve as a good introduction, which I think it did. Uh, but again, knowing we were scratching the surface, and we were doing things kind of, again, structurally. What we're going to do over these next three series of talks, or these three talks, is kind of delve a little bit deeper into what the ritual is actually leading us into. Um, in a sense, we're going to have a chance to go um, behind the ritual, if you will, or deeper into the ritual. So it'll be a little bit more cerebral. Uh, I'll have some things I will read to you, and then in the following weeks I'll make present or make available in some form the, the various quotes that I have, because I think some of them are really quite profound, especially some we're going to be dealing with this evening. The purpose of this, though, is interestingly enough because of some things that have happened, but I want to start actually with a quote from my good friend Abbot Marmion, Christ the Ideal of the Priest. Someone asked me a few days ago when you're reading something, how do you, how do you evaluate if it's good or not? And I said, of course, the imprimatur and the Neil Upstat, the imprimatur is nothing's offensive, there's nothing wrong here. But certainly anything like 1959 and going backwards, you're going to be pretty safe. Uh, anything over that, you're, gonna, you're taking your life in your own hands. So, not too bad, but anyway. So, and again, I, I'm going to seem a, a little bit anxious because well, I'll tell you why I'm anxious later, but let me just read this quote to you to start, get us started, to whet our appetites. But the drama, this is Abbot Marmion's very opening paragraphs. As he reflects, the whole book is on the ideal of the priest. Who is the priest? This opening paragraph, these opening sections are dealing with the sanctity of the priest rooted in the mystery of Christ and Christ's priesthood. But the drama of Calvary, the drama of Calvary is perpetuated in the bosom of the church. At the consecration, under the veil of the sacrament, the cry of the blood of Jesus sounds forth anew. For at that moment, all the love, all the obedience, all the sufferings of his oblation on the cross are presented to the Father. The liturgy proclaims that every time the commemoration of this sacrifice is celebrated, the work of our redemption is accomplished anew. Now, many of the things that I'm going to say to you, I am in one sense assuming that you know, but then you actually may not know them, because we already know the number of statistics of Catholics who do not believe in our Lord's real presence. 
And I'm not sure that all of us understand what it is that actually is happening when we're at Holy Mass. The drama of Calvary is perpetuated in the bosom of the church. You are at Calvary when you are at Holy Mass. That is not hyperbole, it's not myth, it's not analogy. It is true. It's a sacramental, spiritual relationship, but it is just as real as if you were actually there 2,000 years ago. And if you think back to some of the things we talked about liturgically, this is the reason why ritual is repetitive. So I'm a golfer. I, I, I mean, I hack at it, but I'm a golfer, and I think I shared this. One of the things they will tell you about why golfers hit thousands upon thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of golf balls, is because eventually what happens is your body begins to remember the mechanics of the swing. So that when you actually go to play various courses, you're not thinking when you're addressing the ball, how do I swing the club? You're thinking about all the ways I can actually put spin on it or put, hook it or, or whatever I'm going to do to get the ball where it needs to go. You have so trained your body that you can go deeper into the game. You can read the terrain. You can know where to place the ball. All of those things that you see happening that they just take for granted, golfers do. They're successful in doing that because they've done it hundreds of thousands of times. And so we come to Holy Mass. Holy Mass should not be new every single time you come to it. You shouldn't have to know, what am I supposed to be doing here? You should already know that. So when you come, your mind isn't on the mechanics of Holy Mass, but on the experience that Holy Mass is leading you into. Because the fact of the matter is, if we're really honest, that the Lord gives us and applies the merits of the cross, makes them available to us continuously through the celebration of the Holy Sacrifice, is mind-blowing. In His wisdom, in His love for us, He has found this perfect way to make available to us that which He gained for us upon the cross. You could have thought about this for five lifetimes and never have dreamt up, come up with something so brilliant and yet so simple. Because it is. The structure we know, as we looked at last time, is simple. The gifts are simple. Bread and wine. It's really not complicated as much as people might experience it as such. And so at the consecration, under the veil of the sacrament, the cry of the blood of Jesus sounds forth anew. For at that moment, all the love, all the obedience, all the sufferings of his oblation on the cross are presented to the Father. That's the first movement of this sacrifice, is the Father is the sacrifice of the Son to the Father. We are subsumed into that sacrifice. We're not offering our own sacrifice. We bring ourselves to that sacrifice. We're not offering our own because ours don't work. Ours were always limping along in the Old Testament. It's only until Christ came that there is an objective effectiveness to the sacrifices that are being offered. The liturgy then proclaims that every time the commemoration of this sacrifice is celebrated, the work of redemption is accomplished anew. Quoting, actually, that's a quote from the secret of the ninth Sunday after Pentecost. The work of redemption is accomplished anew. Now, don't hear that as if somehow we're improving on the work of our Lord. More of a, a, a real or a reapplication, yet again, or the language that Trent uses, representing, not representing as if somehow as a, an image different from the reality, but the reality itself given to us again and again and again. Okay, so why am I kind of anxious about this? Well, interesting enough, if you've been paying attention in the news lately, yet again, something very interesting came out of Rome. 
Uh, I don't know if you know about this or not. I'm not going to go into all the details because really right now it seems to be no one really knows what's going on. But basically, the long and short of it is the Sustituto, the Substitute Secretary of State, issued a letter basically forbidding the celebration of private masses at St. Peter's Basilica. If you have ever been, how many of you have been to Rome? And how many when you were in Rome went to St. Peter's Basilica? And how many who went to Rome, went, keep your hands up, I'm not done with you yet, went to St. Peter's Basilica, had private mass there at one of the side chapels or side altars, either up the stairs or in the crypt. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. If you have not been, one of the great, many of the great graces of going to the Eternal City is having a chance to celebrate mass at the crypt uh, or upstairs where all the various saints are and to celebrate Mass in the morning, and it was a beautiful thing to see. So any priest could present himself at the sacristy at 7 o'clock in the morning, a little bit before, and then you would see kind of this mad rush of priests who would come in, and they would either be with their pilgrims or they might be there on their own. Many of the priests who work in the Vatican, that is where they celebrate their daily Masses because their days begin, and they don't have the opportunity to celebrate Mass during the course of the day. So it wasn't just pilgrim priests, it was also resident priests who worked there. And it was a beautiful thing to see. You had masses going on in different languages. Uh, you had some masses that were largely well attended because um, of the pilgrims who came. You had other masses where people would actually walk around until they found a mass in their own language. And then with the modo proprio in 2007, you also had then the beautiful proliferation of the extraordinary form. Uh, being celebrated at various side altars. And it was a beautiful thing to see. When I was a student there, one of my, my, my habit on Saturday morning was to get up every day, go celebrate my own Mass. And then I would, at periodically, and I would spend probably from like 6.30 till about 9.30 in St. Peter's Basilica every Saturday morning, between doing my holy hour or moving to some of the different Masses and just simply being there. And one of the things that I'm going to quote from His Eminence, because he beautifully expresses it, that has always been profound to me, is if what Abbot Marmion just expressed about the holy sacrifice of the Mass, that it is this perpetuation of the merits of the cross through time and space, each application, we know that it is an outpouring of grace. St. Thomas reminds us that our Lord's real presence, which we experience now because he is present here with us in the Blessed Sacrament, and of course at Holy Mass on the altar as well as in the Blessed Sacrament, it remains, St. Thomas reminds us among four reasons he articulates for our Lord's real presence, that one of the reasons is so that we can have constant contact with the reality that gained us expiation of our sins and reconciliation with the Father. Each of those individual celebrations of the holy sacrifice of the Mass was a particular inbreaking of grace. Now, the church is reluctant to quantify grace because it isn't something you can put in a bucket, if you will. My brother is an energy lawyer, and he and I always have this conversation because he works for PG&E in San Francisco, which does gas and electric and oil, but also does air. I'm like, how do you, how do you sell and buy and control air? But I guess they have found there's a regulatory reality that allows people to do that. You can control, I don't know, get it, I'm not, I don't understand it, but you can buy and sell airwaves or whatever it might be. Okay, but if we could quantify grace, if we could somehow be aware of how much grace is being unleashed, each of those 30 or 33, 35 opportunities for the celebration of Holy Mass, basically every half hour they were being turned over so you do the math as to how many inbreakings of grace were happening 
in that two-hour period from 7 o'clock in the morning until 9 o'clock in the morning. So they've, they've stopped this. No one knows why. Uh, they, they have some illusions, nothing COVID-related, interestingly enough. I thought that would be the excuse. No, they just simply, and no one knows by whose authority, no one knows who signed it. Of course, there has been a hue and cry literally all over the world. Liberals and conservatives, traditionals and progressives agreeing on something, that this is a scandal. That at the time, actually, in a pandemic, the worst thing you can do, which you've already done already, thanks be to God it hasn't happened again, was to shutter ourselves away from grace to, in order to assist us. So why would you do that at St. Peter's? The mother church, that's not the, that's not the church of the Bishop of Rome, that's St. John Lateran. Which, interestingly enough, again, he just, he's all, he's a, I'm not going to say too much on, on tape because this is all for posterity, but uh, apparently the Lateran is now being turned into, the papal palaces are being turned into a museum, which by and large they are already museum pieces, but they're also, that's where the Pope actually lives. Anyway, let's just stay on topic, forgive me. So, what's going to happen? You are, there are no longer private celebrations, priests must concelebrate. They must can celebrate, and the extraordinary form is only celebrated four times a day at the Clementine Chapel, which is actually the chapel of the Confessio. Uh, it's, a nice, it's a nice gig if you can get it because it puts you proximate to the bones of St. Peter. It's a very hard chapel to get. It's going to be even more difficult to get now because only four times a day, whereas a pull before that you could obviously multiple times, 7, 7.30, 8.30, and that's it, no more. So obviously there have been lots of responses to this. And of course my spiritual father wrote one, His Eminence, our former Archbishop Emeritus Cardinal Burke. And while I'm not going to read the whole of his, there is a part of his response that I think is, not I think I know, is pertinent to our conversation this evening as to why it's profitable for us to be taking these days to look at the holy sacrifice of the Mass and actually look at the sacrifice in the sacrifice of the Mass. He writes, Regarding the individual offering of the Holy Mass, it must be observed that it is not only a question of a right of the priest, which it is. No priest can be forced to concelebrate. Every priest has the right to be the principal celebrant of Mass every day. So not only is it a question of the right of the priest, which he's already addressed, but also of great spiritual fruit for the whole church, since the infinite merits of the Holy, Holy Sacrifice of the Mass are more greatly and widely applied in a manner befitting our finite and temporal nature. He says much better than I can. That it's not only a question of the legal abrogation of rights, it's the more serious issue of the spiritual fruit now that is being limited. It is helpful to reflect, he writes, upon the teaching of the Council of Trent regarding the situation of a priest who offers the Holy Mass without any member of the faithful receiving Holy Communion. Regarding the participation of the faithful at the Holy Mass, the Council teaches, the Holy Council would certainly like the faithful present at every Mass to communicate in it, not only by spiritual devotion, but also by sacramental reception of the Eucharist so that the fruits of this most holy sacrifice could be theirs more fully. That is always the desire, that everyone present would have an opportunity to receive Holy Communion, not only spiritually, everyone should be prepared for that, but also for the actual a reception sacramentally of Holy Communion, which would allow them to more fully participate in the fruits of the sacrifice. 
It goes on to state, but if this does not always happen, for example, the case of a priest celebrating Mass privately, the Council does not for that reason condemn as private and illicit Masses in which only the priest communicates. Rather, it approves and commends them, for they too should be considered truly communal Masses, partly because the people communicate spiritually in them, and partly because they are celebrated by a public minister of the Church, not for his own good alone, but for all the faithful who belong to the body of Christ. It should be further observed that a priest never offers the Holy Mass alone, even if there is no one else physically present, for the angels and saints assist at every offering of the Holy Mass. The beautiful thing about the church's teachings is it causes you to actually lean into what it is we believe. So notice the language that's used here. Now, if you're a believer, which all of us in this room are, there's nothing really earth-shattering or radical about what he actually says to us, quoting from the Council of Trent. But even that last statement, I remember when I was teaching at the seminary, when I was the director of sacred liturgy at Kendrick Glennon Seminary, we had set up a chapel. That was ad orientum, meaning was facing liturgical east. The priest in this chapel, actually when he celebrated Mass, was facing the tabernacle. And one of the priests with whom I worked was incensed that he would no longer be able to celebrate Mass ad populum, facing the people. And he says, and I quote, when I'm facing that way, there is nobody there when I'm celebrating Mass. Now think about what he just said. There is no one there when I'm celebrating Mass. Now I know what he meant. There were no physical people present there. But the fact of the matter is, do we not believe our Lord is present, body, blood, soul, and divinity? And if we do, when we celebrate Mass, he certainly is there, and truth be told, he's the only reason we actually we can celebrate Mass is because he is the one who actually brings us together. And so the language of Trent causes us as Catholic men and women to yet again lean into what it is that we actually believe. There is no such thing as private Mass. There is no such thing as a priest alone. Even if he physically is by himself, he cannot spiritually ever be by himself because of the nature of what the Holy Mass actually is. And again, as the Council itself said prior to that, not only do we not condemn the practice of private Masses, but actually we laud it and maybe even encourage it because the Mass still remains a communal reality even if there is no one else present. And so here in the time when the Church really should have the fruitfulness of her sacramental life expanded by a multiplicity of Masses, and again, it was a profound thing to see all of these priests celebrating Mass. Here, even in our own little oratory, when I've had friends, priest friends, come and visit, uh, all of whom are uh, attached to or celebrate the extraordinary form, we've had all three altars engaged for Holy Mass. A friend of mine went up to the choir loft and took a picture of just how beautiful it is, all of this grace that's being unleashed. Because here's the thing, brothers and sisters, and we know this well. What has happened by what, what has happened is this. The manner in which we celebrate Mass has so radically changed that it has also radically changed what it is that we believe about what we're actually doing. That great phrase, lex orande, lex credende, the law of prayer reflects uh, 
inculcates, um, advances the law of belief. How we do something is going to be, should be, reflective of what it is that we believe. How do I know that there has been a radical change? Because no one goes to Mass anymore before COVID, even less likely now. We know already the high numbers of Catholics sitting in the pew who did go, who did not believe in the Lord's real presence. There was that shock and awe from the bishops, what, two years ago. They were shocked that it was somewhere at 85, 90 percent. We're like, shocked? I'm surprised it's not 100 percent. Why are you surprised? Fifty years of liturgical realities that reinforced that our Lord was not present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. Why be surprised then that after 50, 60 years of a ritual that reinforced that, that the belief has come to pass that he's not really there? But the concern I have for our purposes in looking at the sacrifice is then this loss of our, Lord, of our faith in the Lord's real presence has also lost us a sense of the power of grace and having faith in grace. Grace is real. Grace is transformative. When we speak about the imparting of grace sacramentally, for example, or we speak about the actual graces that God gives us throughout the day to cooperate with him, that is an actual share of God's life imparted to us in order that we might live God's life. But the question that legitimately is asked and about grace is how does one come in contact with grace? And of course, God had already answered that question for us by giving us the whole sacramental economy. But if, in, if we begin to separate ourselves from the reality of that economy, meaning the Lord isn't really there, then grace doesn't actually become real. If God does intervene in my life, it's almost uh, capricious on his part as to when he will, as opposed to, no, you can go to Mass and have contact with God's grace and allow that contact with God's grace to transform you. Now, you have to be properly disposed to receive the grace. You have to be free from sin so that the soil of your soul is receptive to receive the grace. So it's not as if grace is magic. Grace is not fairy dust that God sprinkles on you, poof, you become perfect. Grace requires cooperation from you. But grace is real and true. And it is at the heart of what is happening in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. So what I need to do this evening is to do a little bit of foundational work for us. To talk a little bit about why the sacraments original sin. You'll see that on the topics that are here. So where are we on the outline if you are following along in your type A like I am? We are transitioning. We're in Roman number one, letter D. We're about to transition into why the necessity of the sacraments. Because, again, why would God, why does he go through all of this? What is the purpose of all of this? And this necessity of grace is going to be the reason why. But why do we need God's intervention of grace? Because of original sin. Then grace, and then grace through the sacrament. So those things go one after the other after another. Adam and Eve sin. The sin of Adam and Eve and its impact requires God's intervention, which comes through the reality or is given to us through the grace itself. And grace comes to us for our purposes sacramentally. 
through the sacraments of the church. All right, so let's kind of jump into this a little bit. Everybody's doing okay? I'm not going to ask for questions just yet so that we can get through tonight. I will leave time like I did in the last series for uh, questions and answers at the beginning of each of our talks. So the, ch the sixth, cha the, probably the third chapter of the book of Genesis details the sin of Adam and Eve. Satan lies to Eve, who then goes to Adam, and the two of them find themselves duped by Satan, who told them the reason God doesn't want you to eat from that tree is because you will end up knowing what it is that he knows. They discover death, they introduce death, and as a result of their original sin, they place enmity between them and God, us and God, enmity in their relationship as man and woman, enmity between humankind and creation, or the, um, and creation itself, or the created world itself. The Catechism of the Church, before all of this crazy changes it's undergone in the last five years, said, Man tempted by the devil, this is explaining original sin, let his trust in his Creator die in his heart, and abusing his freedom disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and a lack of trust in his goodness, a lack of trust in God and disobedience to his will. In that sin, man preferred himself to God, and by that very act scorned God. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good. Therein lies the difficulty. In choosing himself, this is the lie that Satan tells. If you choose yourself, you will be good. But the fact of the matter is, if we choose ourselves, what happens? We introduce death. We introduce enmity. We introduce separation from God. Under the guise of having freedom, we actually enslaved ourselves. That's what happens when we enter into sin. This quest for freedom that is unfettered is a quest that ends in death. Because no one is free to do whatever they want. I don't care what they think, that simply does not exist. We are free to do as we ought. And what we ought to be doing is the things for which God has created us. And so what happens is when we enter into sin, when we prefer ourselves over God, we are actually working against ourselves. St. John Paul II described the 20th century, and I think it's carried over now into the 21st century, uh, as, a, 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 as a hopeless age, as a despairing age, manifest by uh, the genocides that went on, the destruction of human life on, on a cataclysmic scale, which of course continues most especially in this century through the scourge of abortion, which now is going to be even more prolific. Man does this all the while talking about freedom and rights. That's the language. I'm free. It's my body. I can do with it what I want. I'm free. You can't impinge on my freedoms. And of course, that freedom has delved into or devolved into all these other freedoms, the freedom to engage in illicit sexual acts, the freedoms to uh, marry multiple partners. And Lord knows where this is going to lead us. All of this is working against us and not for us. The lie once told has gained more power the more man repeats it over and over and over again. We were created in a state of holiness. We were destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. 
and yet seduced by the devil, the Catechism says, he wanted to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. God had every desire to bring us unto himself. So it wasn't as if God wasn't going to achieve that divination that Adam and Eve themselves sought to take on their own. The problem is, it's not something that we can grasp hold of. It is something that we have to receive from God. So in the fullness of time, what happens? God becomes man, sharing with us in everything but sin. And in the glories of the ascension, he takes his creation into the Godhead itself. It was always God's plan that his creation would be in relationship with him, in this intimate relationship, not separated by creature and created, but in this union of father to beloved children. And then the Catechism beautifully expels, explains out to us the tragic consequences of this first disobedience. Adam and Eve immediately lose the grace of original innocence. They become afraid of God and become embarrassed by themselves. The harmony in which they found themselves is destroyed. The control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tension. Harmony with creation is broken. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold for this disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. The control of our spiritual faculties is shattered. The union of man and woman is now subject to tension, and the harmony in creation is broken. This is irrevocable. It happens almost immediately. So this third chapter, which then details the fall of Adam and Eve, also then beautifully not only tells us of their failure, but then also sets up the preparation for our redemption, that reunion that God is going to effect for us. The Proto-Evangelium, it's called, when he says to the serpent, a woman will crush your head even as you nip at her heel, if you will. That's a horrible paraphrase of that beautiful passage. But at the precise moment where we're failing and destroying the perfectedness of what God had created when he created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden and created the whole world, he is also preparing to restore us. That's why they call it the Proto-Evangelium. The first proclamation of the gospel happens in Genesis at the precise moment we sin. See how generous God is? Of course, everything is for God, and therefore he knows this. It's not bound by time and space, but we experience it as such. And so St. John Paul II, in his early catechesis on the theology of the body, speaks about this original innocence, this original justice, existing side by side with original sin. And this is significant at the very heart of grace because our separated brethren, our Protestant brethren, when they destroyed the sacraments, destroyed the primary objective means by which we come in contact with grace. And the reason why they destroyed the sacraments is because they are created things and nothing of the created order could communicate something that was supernatural. Nothing natural can convey the supernatural. How can bread and wine become body and blood? These corruptible, corrupted things created by corruptible entities, human beings, cannot in any way, shape, or form communicate the things of God or create God himself. 
He rejected the whole sacramental economy. Luther did, although there's some debate about that toward the end of his life. Certainly by the time you get to his redactors, you get to Calvin and Zwingli, you get to the uh, Anabaptist and Baptist tradition. Of course, the Anglican Communion is a hodgepodge of realities that are more politically motivated than they are theologically motivated, so it's hard at times to parse all of that out. There's varying stripes of all sorts of beliefs going on there. But what St. John Paul II reminds us is that this original innocence, while, at, while maybe uh, in, in a sense weakened by original sin, there still remains in us that beautiful spark of God that then allows the things of God to adhere to us. Now you should be jumping out of your seats right now because it's exactly thoroughly exciting what I just said. So I'm going to say it again. I don't, you have to jump out of your seat. But think about this. Because we oftentimes experience the sacraments as impositions in our life. God's forcing grace into my life. I have to be at Mass. I have to be baptized. I have to do this. I have to be married. As if all these things, these commandments, these legalities must be before they're, they're forced onto me. What St. John Paul II says at the very beginning of his catechesis on the theology of the body is no, it's quite the opposite. Yes, Adam and Eve sinned, and the consequences were serious and dire and irrevocable, and it was only going to be his son that was going to be able to reconcile us to the Father yet again and restore right relationship and make the harmony complete again. But there still remains in each of us the ability to receive that which God is bestowing upon us. There's a spark, if you will, that remains in each of us, precisely because, as egregious as the sin of Adam and Eve was, it does not have the ability to obliterate the complete goodness of God's creation. God created them. It was good. They were good. That goodness is not just the act of creation, but that which was created. Adam and Eve are good. The human person is good. And so you know Luther's understanding of the human person was a dung heap covered by snow. That's how he conceived of the human person. A dung heap covered by snow. Looks good on the outside, but you don't want to put your hand in it. That's us in the Lutheran economy. So how does God clean that dung heap covered by snow? Well, he gives grace as he sees fit. It's kind of hard sometimes to parse out depending on which Lutheran you're talking to, a high, uh, a high church Lutheran, uh, low church, it depends. But even, they can't really seem to agree as to how that actually comes. But even that conceptualization of the human person after the fall, man has that much power? To destroy God's goodness? And the answer is he does not. If we choose not to be in relationship with God, he will honor that. But fundamentally, in the essence of who we are as God's sons and daughters, even after the sin of Adam and Eve, there remains in us an ability to receive from God those things that now allow us to live God's life. Was there a struggle beforehand? Yes, the whole Old Testament economy was a struggle. These rituals that ultimately lacked the effectiveness to accomplish what they were striving to accomplish. Only when Christ comes and gives us what he does in the seven sacraments of the church do we now have an effective ritual that does what it signifies. And again, I'm using language that I'm going to come to in a minute here. 
Give me one second. I just want to make sure I don't leave out any major points. Mm -hmm. There's so much good stuff here. So at the conclusion of his reflection on this idea of original innocence, St. John Paul II says that the original sin introduced alienation, separation, tension. What the sacraments do, or the sacraments are, are those dynamics which overcome this alienation, this separation, this tension. But they do it in such a way that they actually adhere to us. They are not forcing us to become things that we aren't, but rather allowing us to truly, authentically be who we are actually called to be. See the difference there? Instead of these things that are forcing me to be something that are, in a sense, almost unnatural, God imposes supernatural grace upon this natural creature, but my natural state is to be sinful and slugging along in sin. No, that's not your natural state. Your natural state is to be God's beloved child. And so the sacraments are given to us in order to affect that, to overcome the alienation, the separation, and the tension. God could have discovered a number of ways to affect this reconciliation for us. In a sense, the whole Old Testament is indeed what is going on. It's an attempt to reconcile. But as I said, it is only in Christ, the God-man, that the perfect instrument is given in order to produce the most desired effect, and that is perfect reconciliation. We're going to talk about when we get to sacrifice next week, actually sacrifice itself. There is always going to be the need for a blood sacrifice. The question became, becomes, what creature roaming the earth, having had their blood spilled, could ever make recompense against all our offenses against God? There aren't enough lambs and rams and bullocks offered in order to make up for the sins, because every sin is an offense against God. Now, could we have reasoned to the idea of God becoming man and then taking upon himself all sin, past, present, and future, in order that the perfect blood sacrifice would be effected? No, we would simply not have been able to come up with this. We like to, may like to think we were, but the truth is we could not. So there was always going to need, there was always going to be the need for Christ to come among us, to reveal to us the face of the Father, and then also, not also, and to also, well, as I said it anyway, to expiate our sins. Man's state of original innocence that is always present, in a sense, whenever we speak about original sin, there also then is that original innocence in which we were created, can only be reached through the sacraments, through this covenantal relationship into which God enters with us. And as such, the sacraments specifically provide us graces in general, and then particular graces to each of the seven sacraments. Grace is that favor, the free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God, adoptive sons, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. That's Catechism 1996. Grace is favor, free, undeserved, 
that God gives to us to become children of God, to become adoptive sons, daughters, partakers of the divine nature and of eternal life. Grace is a participation in the life of God himself. The grace of God, the grace of Christ rather, is this gratuitous gift that is given to us, that God makes uh, to us or gives to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our souls to heal it of sin and then to sanctify. That's what goes on in baptism. Beautifully, more beautifully expressed, um, sadly, in the extraordinary form than it is in the ordinary form, because the extraordinary form has a very series of clear exorcisms of what actually is happening in the ritual of baptism. You are removing the original sin. This is very hard for people. I see it sometimes on the face of parents uh, if I do this in translation. When you look at some of the language, it talks, this is a baby. And, and since my people are well catechized, they're bringing their children to be baptized within weeks. And they're hearing this language about up until now they were in darkness and sin. Well, it's a baby. How could it be? Because they were in original sin. We don't, may not like to hear it. It may not be comfortable to hear, but it's no less true. doesn't mean they were personally culpable, but there still is the original sin into which we are all born. It's that stain that Adam and Eve passed on to us that only God can remove. And so what happens through the grace of baptism is precisely that to heal that wound that was created by Adam and Eve, and then to sanctify us, to continue to live that very life that has happened to us. It isn't just a return to the Garden of Eden. So what are we going to hear at the Exalted? O Felix culpa, O happy fault, O necessary sin of Adam. I love that. Why is it happy? Why is it not? Because what happens, God, in the midst of sin, finds this perfect way to reconcile us. And so God doesn't simply just restore us to where we were. He actually makes us better off than we were before. We don't deserve even having gone back. But God does us one, not one better, not two. He does us three better. He says, okay, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Not only am I going to make you better than you were in the garden, because in the garden, all Adam and Eve knew is that they were creatures of a God who every now and then walked among them. What's revealed in Christ is that you are God's children. And this is how you talk to Him. This is how you love and respond to Him. We were never going to be deserving of this and should have been less deserving after the sin of Adam and Eve. And so we can proclaim, oh, happy fault. Oh, necessary sin, because all of this does, sets in motion what God is going to do, what in one sense he had always intended to do. Everybody okay so far? Do we need to stand up for a minute? Everybody's good? You awake? You can respond. God's not going to be mad. You can nod your heads at least so I know that you're there. I can't see your faces. It's okay. It's not a comment, just a true statement. I don't want to get myself in trouble on air again. I'm always stepping in it. It's a wonder I haven't been fired yet. Anyway, don't laugh at that. That could, that could happen. Don't laugh. <laughs> Sanctifying grace is habitual grace, a stable and supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God, to act by his love. We need God to live God's life and to do the things of God. And so God allows us to do that by sharing himself with us. And that comes about through the sacramental life of the church. 
So I grow slightly frustrated when I hear people complain about, I, I can't grow my spiritual life, or I can't, and they start whining about, it's just hard, it's difficult. It's not hard and difficult. Or actually, I take that back. It is hard and difficult. And God gives you grace in proportion for the hardness and the difficulty of living the Christian life. Now, if you thought this was going to be easy, you're in the wrong place. Because the man we follow, the God-man we follow, himself was subject to suffering and death. Why are we convinced that somehow it should be easier for us? I mean, that's God. Well, it's hard on him. That's great, but he's God. Yes, but if that's how he went, then you have to follow in the exact same manner. And so, yes, is it hard? Yes. But God will give you the grace you need in order to fulfill whatever crosses that he's asking you to fulfill. So, original sin and its impact. The necessity of grace to allow us to not only repair the damage of original sin and to restore us, but then to improve us in such a way that we can then live out this new life of adopted children that is bestowed upon us through the grace of the sacraments of baptism and then all those that come after we have been initiated into the life of the church. And then, of course, the sacraments are the means by which grace is given. So, let's chat just a little bit, so I don't want to not get to the heart of our topic. We're almost there. Hmm. This is Roman number number three, Jesus as the primordial sacrament. Okay, so I'm about to blow your brains out, just so be, just be patient, okay? This is going to get a little freaky, because we don't often think this way. But it also helps us to be clear as to the centrality and the necessity of Christ. Something that as Christians we have become embarrassed by. One must know and have Christ in order to be saved. Now, that's a controversial statement I just made. I know some bishops actually who either will hem and haw about that statement or will disagree with me completely and totally. But the fact of the matter is, the degree to which those who do not know Christ receive salvation, and no one can know that, we don't know that in this life at all, but if indeed they do, and certainly any goodness that those who do not know Christ actualize, the pious Jew or the Muslim, Hindu, Jainist, um, the atheist for that matter, the good that they do comes from the graces that the church herself imparts. They don't have to acknowledge it, but one cannot do good apart from Christ. The goodness of Christ, the revelation of Christ, isn't for believers. It's for everybody. Everybody. St. John Paul II again. Christ is the revelation of man to himself. Not believing man, not confessing man, man, period. Christ is the revelation of man to himself. That has a whole uh, series of, of implications in terms of our evangelization as well. But for our purposes, what's happening sacramentally, uh, this Christ as the primordial sacrament is to reemphasize the centrality and the necessity of Christ in this conversation. So, one of the ways to talk about the relationship that is 
if you will, interiorly in the Blessed Trinity is to speak about it in the terms of the dialogical. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are in conversation with each other. This fits beautifully, of course, with Genesis. Let us, they, we breathe, and from this breath of life comes forth out of this formless void comes creation itself. Of course, that then fast forward to the prologue of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The speaking becomes in flesh. Of course, we know throughout the Old Testament, God is constantly speaking with His people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through angels, uh, of course Moses through the burning bush, and then directly through the cloud, uh, the prophets as themselves tools by which God spoke to his people, but also speaking to them. So the dialogical, this conversation, God enters into conversation among himself. When we are called into existence at the moment of creation, thereby being drawn into relationship with God, we then likewise are drawn into the conversation. The call from God endowed with a particular character through baptism requires a response from us. So, if we pause for just a moment, as soon as we're created, we're built for this communia, we're built for entering into this conversation. The difficulty is just as infants, we need to be taught how to speak, we need to be nurtured, we need to be raised up, if you will, in how to do these things. The same is true when it comes to conversing with God. The only person, or maybe the best person, suited to teach us how to speak to God is God himself. So God calls. We must respond. Now you may argue, well, why must we respond? For the same reason when someone says hello to you, you say hello back. It's instinctive, is it not? It would be rude, and you know it would be rude, and you would feel bad. And if you didn't feel bad, then there's something wrong with you, and you weren't raised right. When someone says hello to you, when someone acknowledges you, you acknowledge them back. Good morning, good morning. It's not an invitation to let your whole life be unfolded. It simply is, an, I, I greet you, I see you, I acknowledge you. It ain't got to be a thing, it just is. And good manners, good breeding, which really just grow out of common sense, requires that you respond. And then you look at somebody, you look them in the eye, and you engage them. Well, if this is true on a human level, then imagine how necessary this is on the supernatural level. If God speaks to you, you ought to respond. You shouldn't wait. You shouldn't be churlish. You shouldn't be uh, infantile. You should respond back to him. Of course, in this call and response, the response to God has taken various forms. But eventually, the form of perfect response is the incarnation. God takes flesh. Because God in the flesh is able now to fully communicate to us in a way that not was absent on his part, but rather was absent on ours. We needed someone like us in all things but sin to show us how in the flesh we can be as we ought to be. This would always freak my seminarians out when we were doing penance and anointing, when I would tell them, we don't have to sin. Or will we sin? I said, I know. I'm not saying we don't sin. I'm just saying we don't have to. We can cooperate with God's grace. We can do that if we chose choose to. Well, that's impossible. That's, that's, none, the fact that we don't doesn't mitigate against the possibility that God gives sufficient grace to allow us to live as we should. Those two things aren't mutually exclusive. 
So while the response that we gave to God has taken on various forms in the fullness of time, the perfect form in the flesh came and dwelt among us. The mystery of the incarnation definitively articulates the need of a response to God that now is not only manifested in our fidelity to the things that God says, but now a fidelity to the person of God made manifest in Christ, the word that is now tangible and real, and uh, uh, we can hold fast to it, to him, actually. God became man to reconcile, to restore, and then in the act of reconciliation and restoration to make it possible for us to respond to God who first sought us, who first spoke to us by bringing us into existence and then gives us his son as living language, allowing now perfect conversation with God. So if you never can understand fully the Trinity... And by the way, if you say the Trinity is a mystery and you mean that as a throwaway line, you're wrong. The reason the Trinity is a mystery is because we can never exhaust explaining it, not because we don't understand it. Everything in the church is intelligible and explainable. We don't hide behind mystery as a throwaway concept. Well, I can't give you an answer, so it must be mysterious. No, that's what Mormons do. Have you ever asked a Mormon, have you ever encountered a Mormon and tried to get them to explain Mormonism? It's actually, I shouldn't laugh, but it's kind of, it's kind of funny. Because it's almost like a robot who eventually kind of gets the head blows off because it just keeps repeating over and 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 they don't know what to do or say. So when they dedicated that temple thing they've got on Highway 40, you could go in and see it before they closed the doors and made it super secret. Only the initiated get to go in. And at the end, I was a deacon at the time. This is 25 years ago, 26 years ago. At the end, they allowed you to talk to the Mormons and kind of ask questions. And so three or four of us, it was kind of, it was an unfair fight. We were bullies. These poor little, these two girls, young girls, uh, maybe college age. I think one of them may have been married, so not that young, but uh, anyway. And we were just hammering questions from the ascension to why you guys baptize everybody over again and why Joseph Smith. And, and after a while, and then at some point, there must have been kind of a, a rallying cry, cry or something, maybe some noise they emit in their soul that other guys started coming. And then eventually, it wasn't even a conversation. They simply moved us out. It's time for you guys to go. Okay, we left. We had taken holy water in it, by the way, and just kind of sprinkled holy water all over the place. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say that on tape. You're going to have to edit that out, Lou. I don't, want to, I don't want to destroy ecumenical relationships with the Mormons. So, how did I get on that conversation? <laughs> I hate it sometimes when my mind doesn't work the way it should, the way it ought to work. We have this beautiful response in the living word, this living language that is Christ himself. And so now our conversation with God is perfect. Because as it says, it issues not only again from our lips and our mouths and our spoken words, but now it exists, this conversation, from our very existences. And so oftentimes the question is asked, when the Lord himself makes clear in sacred scripture, I've come not to abolish the law. What's new about the law? And the newness of the law is made manifest in Our Lady. She's obedient. She's faithful. She listens to the word. She, of course, has studied the word. Thank you. Is that you, Mr. Patrick? Oh, I wish it was. Oh, man. What's new, though, 
is the word, that obedience, that fidelity, that listening, the word is, she takes the word inside of herself. That's what's new. Not that we're obedient, not, God doesn't abrogate his law, God doesn't change his law, he fulfills his law, but the fulfillment of the law comes in taking the law inside of yourself, literally. That's what Our Lady does. So when Nicodemus asks, how does one born again? How does one go back into, how does that happen? That's a fair question. That happens through water and baptism. How does one then do what Our Lady does? John's Gospel says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to remain in me and I in you. So all the questions you think you can answer, God has already answered. If indeed the newness of the law consists in taking God literally inside of ourselves, and this is how then our whole existence is given over into the conversation, the dialogue with God, then we are able to do that because God has left us this perpetual memorial, this perfect sacrifice that allows us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. It could never have been just simply bread and wine. It has to be. It was always going to have to be real food and real drink so that real life would actually be in me. That then allows me what? Now I'm even better suited, better prepared to enter into the conversation. God calls. We respond. And the response is Christ himself. All of this, of course, again, comes down to Christ as the first sacrament. So a simple definition of a sacrament, to go back to St. Augustine, is visible sign of invisible grace. That was the simple definition of a sacrament from the time of Augustine, probably until, so we're talking at Augustine's, what, 4th century? So maybe 4th to 7th, 8th century. Then they start playing around with it in the early Middle Ages, and then finally the great doctor himself, Thomas Aquinas, gives us the sacraments are signs and causes of grace. We're going to pull all this apart a little bit in just a moment. But the first sign and cause of grace is Christ himself. He is a sign by virtue of who he is physically, but then in his physical person, he also causes the grace that he signifies, meaning the grace that he signifies is reconciliation. He causes that. He affects that. He makes it real and true. So the story of Abraham, the covenant beginning even in a sense with the prehistory of Adam and Eve and Noah, is God beginning again that which was always present, but latent and difficult to discern because of sin. This ability that is in us to converse with God, it was there, but it was oftentimes overshadowed by sinfulness that made it difficult for us to see beyond ourselves. So God does that in Christ and assists us in being able to see beyond ourselves. And then he uses his created order to participate and play a significant part in this conversation. We will have always needed Christ to speak to the Father. He's the revelation that God is Father. He is the revelation that there is a Spirit who continues to bind and hold us together. But then God also uses His creation to communicate Himself to us and to communicate the graces of this reconciliation, of this relationship, of this reunion that He has effected on the cross. The whole Old Testament, in a sense, is a recounting of the failure of man to respond to God and God's ongoing fidelity to man until such time that God himself was able to raise up someone who would carry the conversation. 
Have you ever been in a conversation with someone who doesn't know how to converse? And you're laughing because you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's painful. Painful. Or the person who doesn't know how to get off the phone? Hang up. That's the easiest thing to do. Okay, bye. Okay, bye. Yeah, okay, good. You take care. Okay, bye. Good to see you. Yeah, bye. Okay, hang up. Just hang up the phone. That's all you got to do. It's got to be a thing. Doesn't know how to converse. Doesn't know how to talk. Doesn't look you in the eyes when he converses with you. His voice, you actually hear what he's saying. But also conversation, good conversation. Again, of course, we're, we're so caught up with all the technology. You don't have good conversations to be an art. People were trained to engage people in conversation. So you knew how to bring someone into the conversation. So if you're sitting there and you're with work friends and someone who doesn't work with you is there, you don't spend the whole time talking about work. You invite that person into the conversation. You find ways to be, by the very nature of the God, to be inclusive. So we know all these things on a natural level, which is why, of course, it makes sense that it becomes for us a, 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 an explanation of what's actually happening supernaturally, because that's actually where it comes from. We are able to enter into communion, to conversation, to dialogue with each other because we're able to do that because we're created in the image and likeness of God. So, if the whole Old Testament was the failure, the New Testament in Christ is the success. Someone, finally, who would be able to keep up his end of the conversation. And, of course, that was only and always ever going to be God himself. Christ then becomes the perfect sign. He is the perfect utterance. He is the Word, capital W. He is the perfect visible manifestation of the fidelity of man to God that then makes perfect God's union fidelity to us. Finally, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. The Lord is the Word, the perfect language, so much so that all that is needed now is not a sheer multiplication of words, but only one, Christ himself, the name by which all men are saved, the name we speak to God that now is perfect and allows us to enter into conversation with our Father. It's almost as if it is the password itself. How do I get in to the room? I speak Christ. The perfection of the dialogue is on the cross. So if one wants to say that Christ is necessary in order to have intimate union and to penetrate the economy of the Trinity, then the cross is that aspect of Christ's existence that is necessary for us to be configured to Him, to union with Him, Christ, in order that then He can bring us into union with the Father. When the covenant is sealed in his blood, and in that act of sealing the covenant with his blood, he conquers the effects of sin and death once and for all, and then sets up means by which even if we fail again, which of course we know we do, we are able to then have that unity restored, not through us, but what it is that he has left us. And of course, the Lord's ascension allows him, as Paul says in the exhortation to the Hebrews, to continue to be the great high priest who makes intercession on our behalf. All right, let's go to number four. We're making some progress here. We're actually good. Everybody still doing okay? Have I thoroughly confused you? Not too bad? Okay, well, we'll see. So let's, let's get a working definition of a sacrament. 
We gave a definition of liturgy the last time. Liturgy is adoration through which men is sanctified. It's a simple definition. Liturgy allows us to perfectly adore God, which is the first movement. God is worthy of adoration because he's God. Not because he does anything, although he does, but that's not the reason why we adore him. Because what's going to happen is when we get to heaven, there will still be liturgy. There will be no sacraments. There will be liturgy. There will be no sacraments. I said this when I was on retreat to the sisters, and I could see them. These are good holy sisters, so they're not given to histrionics, but they were not comfortable with that statement. What do you mean there are no sacraments? There's no need for sacraments. There will always, however, be need for adoration, because once we get to heaven, that's what we're going to be doing for our whole existence, is giving praise to God, looking upon the beatific vision and being fulfilled. So, if liturgy which is, if you will, the ritual by which then these sacraments come to us. Liturgy is adoration by which man is made holy. A, a, a sacrament simply is an efficacious sign of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church by which divine life is dispensed to us. You can see Augustine's simple definition, visible sign of invisible grace. But as the churches want to do beautifully, because God has given her a mind, she reflected on these things and gave us a more precise definition. It's an efficacious sign, meaning it's effective. It does what it says it's going to do. That finds its origins in Christ. All seven sacraments were instituted by Christ. And then they were entrusted in their matter and form to the church. And what happens to these efficacious signs instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, we receive divine life. Grace is dispensed to us. That grace is real and true. So when we come, as we will be next week and the week after, looking at the merits of the sacrifice, what's going on in the sacrifice, we'll talk about the fruits of the sacrifice, the graces. All these things are real and true. That's the beauty of this. And so you begin reading these things, especially the beautiful, clear way the church described these things in the preconciliar period. You realize how much is actually happening in a half an hour. Low Mass is a half an hour on a Tuesday morning at 7 o'clock, maybe 40 minutes. Not a lot of time weighed against the other 23 hours in your day and all the other things you're doing. That's all. And yet that's the best part of your day if you're at 7 o'clock Mass, whatever Mass you go to if you're able to go to daily Mass. That's the best part of your day because of what it is that's happened to you. And in one sense, what is going to continue to happen to you. The primary effects of the sacrament are precisely that, this dispensation of divine life, this giving of grace. And they do so with that great Latin phrase, ex opere operato, by the work it is worked. Not by the worker. It's not dependent upon me. I gave a, a talk on the priesthood to a not-so-friendly group of people. Forget what the occasion because I usually don't go into enemy territory, so I'm not sure what the occasion was for me to do that. But we were talking about the ontological change of the priesthood. You may have heard that phrase, the ontology. The priest is configured to Christ the high priest and receives an indelible mark on his soul that allows him to cooperate effectively with the administration of the sacraments. Okay. When all is said and done, the reason why that happens for the priest is to protect you all. It's not to give him something that you don't have. 
It's to make sure that that which God wants to give to you is not going to be impeded by me. All right? So I do have the power to bind and loose, for example. I had to remind somebody that the other day. He was getting in my face as we were standing in the confessional. I said, it's not good to upset the confessor before you go to confession. You might want to wait until afterwards. Uh, not that I would just indiscriminately bind and loose, but I do have that authority. I have that power. That's a real power, folks. Uh, I don't take it lightly, and we're encouraged, obviously, not to take it lightly. But this exercising of this authority, even that reality, the keys to the kingdom, are given not for me to lord it over you, but are rather given to me in order that that which God wants for you, the salvation of your souls, what does Paul say to Timothy? God desires that all men might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God desires that we be saved. That's what God wants for us. And so the dispensation of the sacramental life of the church, through men set aside to do that, they, the work that is done is what makes it effective. So, what, I'm not, well, we can talk about that later. I don't want to get too bogged down in there. But that's important to remember that, meaning that it's not, it isn't just simply based on the disposition of the man who is there. It isn't magic. The church is not attempting to manipulate nature. That's what magic is. Magic is an attempt to manipulate and to obfuscate. The sacraments are a response in the natural, interacting with the supernatural. And then finally, these were all instituted by Christ. Christ intended the sacramental life of the church. To talk about Christ is the, as the primordial sacrament is not then to say that the other seven sacraments weren't intended by God, by Christ. They were. He meant for them to come and do precisely what it is they do. That conversation becomes significant, especially among our separated brethren, some of whom have seven, some have six, some have five, some have two, depending on what they confess and how they understand it. All right. Okay, so let's go to Roman numeral number five. Because all of this preliminary information was to basically make sure that we understand that this ritual of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass that we talked about last time, through the sacraments, which we gave a simple working definition for, do actually bring about the intended desired effects. Specifically, we are entering into a real and true sacrifice. So, you know what? We're going to stop here, I think. And the reason being is because we're going to, this is going to be a little bit more involved than I want. Instead of having to repeat it, it just would be good to begin again. So that's where we will start next week. Um, are there any questions to start with? I guess we have a, a few minutes. You may be reeling right now from being bombarded with all of this information. May take a little bit to piece it all together. Any thoughts at all? We're not getting out early, so don't be afraid to be that guy who raises his hand when class is trying to be dismissed early. We're not going anywhere just yet. Yes, Jane. The simple the question is why are we better off now than we were when Adam and Eve were in paradise? Because Adam and Eve did not know themselves to be God's sons and daughters. They did not. 
They could not have reasoned to that. At some point, God was going to have to reveal that to them. And so while their sin banished us from the garden, it also then set in motion what we now has come to pass, and that was the full revelation, first of the Son himself in the flesh, and then through the Son, our authentic dignity. I no longer call you slaves, I call you friends. When you talk to God, you call God Father. When you pray to God, call God Father. I, I, imagine, imagine what that must have been for them to hear that. They can't even speak the sacred name. They can't write the sacred name. And God is, when you call him Father? Oh, wow. So yeah, that's much better than Adam and Eve. Would it be nice to have been in the garden when it was untouched? Sure. But to be there simply as a beast, as a creature? and not know my full dignity as a child of God? That's the thing. That's, again, that's the lie that Satan told. They exchanged the dignity that God had given them for the misperception of what they thought they would receive by being disobedient to him. And so when we describe the happy fault and the necessary sin, it seems counterintuitive. Wouldn't it have been better to be in the garden when it was perfect? No, not at the expense of my authentic dignity being revealed to me as a child of God. That's what the prodigal son recognizes when he pulls himself out of what? Literally, the muck and the mire and the pigs. I have a dignity. Even if I don't reclaim my dignity as a child, as his son, that's what the prodigal says, I still have a dignity because my father gives dignity to everybody who works on his farm, who works at his vineyard. So I'll go back and be a hired hand. It better that, better that, than being in the Garden of Eden and not knowing actually who I am. That's my full existence. Okay. Does that make sense? You're welcome. So bring someone else with you next week. This will be, especially next week when we dive in a little bit more deeply into Christ and the Holy Mass, and then we're going to then also look uh, at the nature of the sacrifice itself and talk a little bit about sacrifice. I I'm looking forward to this particularly because I think it'll blow your mind to really understand what's happening when we talk about the sacrifice of the Mass. And then we're going to conclude on the, during the eve, actually in, the, in Holy Week itself, with the graces of Holy Mass and devoutly assisting at Holy Mass, moving us into the Easter season where we're celebrating uh, the greatest Christic event, and that is the passion, death, and glorious resurrection of our Savior, the completion of the Paschal mystery. So there's some good stuff coming up. Bring others with you. Again, these are being videotaped, and this series will be available later on. Again, you should have a form. If you want to have a hard copy, this is how you can go about purchasing the hard copy of the first series that we did on the Sacred Liturgy itself. Please rise. And as our evening concludes, let us call upon the intercession of our Blessed Mother as we pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Saints Gregory and Augustine, Dominus Vobiscum, Benedictio Deo Omnipotentis Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen. God bless you and have a good evening. Be safe going home.